Church, go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me for the last time to the book of Leviticus. Somebody say, yeah, yeah. All right. You guys know I love to preach, right? I hope you know that. I do. So it, it, it's good that it works out that I get to do this a whole lot. Uh, but, but I'll tell you, there are Sunday mornings that I can really hardly stay in my seat. Though I love the time of singing together, but I, I'm just so eager to come before you and share God's Word. And I will say that this morning is one of those mornings. Which is fitting because it's not only Christmas Eve, but as somebody has already celebrated, it's our last day in Leviticus. I actually wrote pause for groaning in my manuscript, uh, but turns out you had the opposite. Uh, no, it, listen, it's, it's bittersweet because I, I am looking forward to getting back to the New Testament, and I know I'm not the only one, certainly, but on the other side, Leviticus has been so very rich in my own personal life, and the Lord has done great things as we've worked our way through it. And so this morning, without further ado, we'll be in Leviticus chapter 26, uh, reading verses... Uh, well, we're going to be covering verses 44 through 45, but I'm going to start at verse 40 and read to the end of the chapter. So if you have your Bibles, Leviticus 26, starting at verse 40, reading to the end of the chapter. The precious and errant fallible word of God says, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness, in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies... If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. I will remember the land. The land also shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despised my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies... I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of of Moses. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Gracious Father, we do just that. We, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have the privilege of having your written word before us. Therefore, we have access to the inspired record of your redemptive works recorded throughout history. Lord, how incredible are your works. How incomprehensible are your redemptive deeds, and yet you communicate to us that we might apprehend your plan from eternity past to redeem for yourself a people. Father, this morning we have an opportunity to consider that. I am, I am flat out not able to communicate the majesty, greatness, and the awesomeness of your works, and so I pray for a special measure of help this morning. I pray that you would grant each hearer a special measure of grace that we might strive together to catch a greater glimpse of your perspective as you work out your unstoppable mission to rescue sinners and bring them into your family. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, 
Okay, before we consider verses 44 and through, through 45, just a quick review, since this will probably be the last time I have opportunity to do this. Hopefully you guys can almost repeat this with me, but we'll review it. Leviticus is coming on the heels of Exodus, right after the Lord has descended upon his tabernacle, his holy palace tent. And he calls forth at the beginning of Leviticus his holy servant Moses and determines to speak through him to his holy people to instruct them on how they are to live holy lives before their holy king, God himself. That's Leviticus, right? It's those instructions given to God's people that they may walk in his ways and not in the ways of the nations. That they might keep his statutes and not the statutes of the nations. So here we're in chapter 26. And we've come to the end of those instructions in the book of Leviticus. I I know if you're visiting here, you're thinking, you know there's another chapter, right? Yes, I do. Uh, But remember, these are are bookend chapters. If you've been with us before, uh, both 25 and 27 are both speaking of redemption. So we covered that when we covered chapter 25. The center portion here, chapter 26, is really the end of all of these covenant instructions. What we have there are blessings for those who walk in obedience, specifically addressing Israel. If Israel walks in obedience, the Lord will bless them. The Lord will produce in the land abundantly. They will be protected from all their enemies. They will multiply and be fruitful. They will be great and mighty. But most importantly among all that, the Lord himself will dwell with them. He will be their portion and reward. That's if they obey. Now, if they don't obey, they will receive upon themselves the curses, which are really the exact opposite of all the blessings listed out. The land will experience famine. They will not experience safety. Instead, wild beasts and foreign people will assault them. They will experience starvation. Their cities will be destroyed. The temple will be torn down. And most importantly, the Lord himself will no longer be present. Now, in these closing verses... We see the Lord reminding them that if they repent, He will hear them. But in verse 44, we really hear something incredible. Something that as I studied this last week, it really rocked me to my core. It really changed my perspective on how I see my own life in light of God's story. And I pray that it would do the same for you. That I might in some way impart some of that to you this morning as we go through this. The big idea in this passage, if we just boil it down, is also going to serve as your outline. Spoiler alert. The big idea is this. Israel will be unfaithful. But the Lord will be faithful. Because the Lord will remember His covenant. Israel will be unfaithful. But the Lord will be faithful. Because the Lord will remember His covenant. That's the big idea. Let's just very simply break each of those down in turn. We start with this. God's people, Israel, will be unfaithful. God's people, or Israel, will be unfaithful. We see this in verse 44, how it starts. Verse 44 starts like this, Yet for all that, or as the 95 NASB puts it, it says, Yet in spite of this. So the obvious question when we read it is, In spite of what? Yet for all of what? Well, 
in spite of their disobedience, in spite of the covenant curses that are going to come upon them because they will refuse to walk in the way of the Lord. Put your eyes on verse 43 with me and, and read what it says here before it says, yet for all that. It says, the land also shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despised my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statues yet for all that. Meaning, in spite of all their sin and faithlessness, despite Israel's refusal to walk in the ways of the Lord, to follow his rules and to keep his statutes, despite that, they will even be exiled actually because of their gross apostasy. And so we see that in a word, yet for all that, is regarding Israel's unfaithless. Now, now notice something that's remarkable here. In the context of the story of redemptive history, this is not a hypothetical situation. The Lord laying this out at the, at the foot of Mount Sinai is not giving them a potential scenario. Look at verse 44 again. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies. The Lord is saying here, when Israel disobeys him, when Israel is exiled because of their unfaithfulness, he will be faithful. We're not there yet, but, but look at that. Look at that when. See, it's really easy to just look past that, pass over it and not think much about it because we're on this side of that history. But put yourself in the original audience's shoes. Put yourself in the place of those who are standing right there at the foot of Mount Sinai, listening to the Lord as he speaks. He says, when they are in the land of their enemies. Do, do we have a theology of God that allows us to understand exactly what the Lord is saying here? We, we know that God is sovereign, right? We know that he's omniscient. Omniscient, of course, is simply the Lord knows all things. As the catechism that our Sprout Ministry is studying puts it, does God know all things? And the answer is yes, nothing can be hidden from God. God's knowledge is infinite. See, God doesn't know just the, uh, does not just know the actualities. God knows all the possibilities, all potentialities. As David puts it in Psalm 139, verse 4, he says, For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. The Lord himself says in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, For I am God, and there is no other. I'm God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things that are not yet done. Scripture, in our verse specifically, does not allow us to adopt a picture of the Lord waiting to see what Israel will do so that he might respond to it. It doesn't. There's no space for that here. This isn't a, a cosmic chess match. The Lord does not wait with bated breath to see what his creatures will do so that he might respond. The Lord has a redemptive plan that cannot be derailed. This is about the unstoppable mission of God. We have to come to the end of the covenant instruction here in Leviticus. And, and what we've seen is what the Lord has required. We've seen what the Lord has explained to Israel about the potential blessings and curses. But now he's giving this summary statement. This is his closing argument. And here's the kicker. The Lord's closing word to Israel on this subject is, by the way, you're going to be unfaithful. By the way, you're going to receive the covenant curses. How's that for a motivational talk? Merry Christmas, right? 
The point is, this is, this is not one possible future out of many. This is the unfolding redemptive plan of the Lord. As sure as the sun will rise, Israel will be unfaithful. When the Lord says when, he means when and not if. Just as the Lord told Abraham. When, when the Lord was covenanting with Abraham in, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, he tells Abraham, oh, by the way, your children are going to go to a foreign land and be enslaved there for four generations. That wasn't a maybe. That was, this is what will happen. And of course, we know the Lord was right. Israel would be unfaithful. Israel would be exiled for their unfaithfulness. If you, if you really want to read the historical account of that, it's in 2 Kings chapter 21 through 25. In fact, I want to look at that just briefly in 2 Kings 21 and check out King Manasseh's reign and how it's described. This is what we read in, in 2 Kings 21, starting in verse 2, and I'll go for a bit, uh, about King Manasseh and his reign. It says this, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal and made a wooden image as Ahab king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the host of heavens and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven and the two courts of the house of the Lord. That's really bad, by the way, if you know Old Testament history is. But it goes on, verse 6. Also he made his son pass through the fire, practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Now, you might be tempted to argue and say, well, that was, yeah, that's just one king out of many. But if you're in our youth Sunday school and you've been studying the history of the kings, if you're familiar with the history of Israel, is that unfortunately not the norm? The exception are the kings that are actually faithful to the Lord. There are some by the grace of God, but they are the exception, not the rule. Let's face it. In fact, this generation hearing this barely gets out of Mount Sinai before they're sinning against the Lord and unfaithful. Numbers chapter 10 is really the the first return to narrative in all this, and they're already grumbling to the Lord because He's not giving them what they want. In Numbers 14, they flat out say, we need to find someone to just lead us back to Egypt already. Egypt was great. This following the Lord stuff stinks. Faithlessness, right out of the gate, carried all the way through. So we read at the end of 2 Kings in verses, or chapters 24 and 25 that the Lord brings Babylon, a mighty nation against his own people, so that their cities are destroyed and they're exiled. Many are put to death and ultimately God's people are vomited out of the land, to use that scriptural language. See, the covenant curses we've looked at in Leviticus 26 are experienced in the history of ancient Israel as a horrific reality. Jeremiah, who prophesied during Babylon's conquest before and during, explains exactly why those covenant curses came upon Israel. He says in Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, these words, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know, and seek in her open places. If you can, if you can find a man, if there's anyone 
who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. The Lord says, find me one singular man that does this. Verse 2, though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. O Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You've stricken them, but they have not grieved. You've consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. Listen, this is not something, by the way, that happened overnight. This is something that started where? In the Garden of Eden. In fact, we could ask this question. When was Israel faithful? The answer would be never. They come to Mount Sinai and immediately make an idol while Moses is up with the Lord. Now, now don't get me wrong. Israel, not picking on them, they are simply, again, a reflection of humanity as a whole. But, but they're not faithful. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 6 says, She is full of oppression in her midst. Verse 13 of Jeremiah 6 says, Because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, Everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. The entire nation was corrupt. And I know, listen, I know this is all history for us. Not surprising here. But but here's the point. I want you to put yourself right now in the position of these people standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, hearing these instructions from the Lord. You have just been redeemed out of Egypt by the right arm of the Lord. By mighty acts of judgment. You have been brought to him and you have been told that you are a holy nation, a holy priesthood in special relationship with the Lord. The Lord is saying to Israel in no uncertain terms, even so you will be unfaithful and you will be driven from the land. But praise God for the buts in scripture. Maybe I should have said the yets, but I'm going to praise him for the buts. Grow up. Israel... You will be unfaithful, but God will be faithful. God will be faithful. Look at verse 44 again. It says, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them, to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. See, the Lord will not utterly destroy them and break his covenant with Israel. The light of Israel will not be snuffed out no matter how dark the day. In other words, the Lord will never abandon his purposes because the Lord, unlike Israel, is faithful. And this is true from the very beginning, is it not? Adam was cursed on the day he rebelled against God, but he was not utterly destroyed. God did not break his covenant with Adam. Judgment was delivered against all people in the flood. But God did not utterly destroy humanity, did he? Noah and his family were spared, and God did not break his covenant with humanity. Likewise, here in our verse, the Lord, his commitment is unilateral. He will be faithful despite their unfaithfulness. So just as we look at the historical account and see gross unfaithfulness of God's people, we can go back to 2 Kings and also see God's committed faithfulness to not ultimately destroy them. In fact, 2 Kings, this is where it ends. 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 27 through 30 says, Now it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. He spoke kindly to him 
and gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him in Babylonia, Babylon. So Jehoiachin changed from his prison garments and ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. Listen, if you know Old Testament history, you know Jehoiachin did evil inside of the Lord. Right? Jehoiachin's not Josiah or Hezekiah. This is Jehoiachin. Exiled? Yes. Utterly destroyed? No. And we could pull out the same testimony from Jeremiah just as he records the wickedness of Israel. He also says time and time again, but I will not make a complete end of my people. The testimony of Scripture bears witness to God's faithfulness despite the unfaithfulness of His people. But why is this? Well, look at verse 45 with me. But for their sake... I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. See, the Lord is faithful. God's people are unfaithful. The Lord is faithful. And finally, he will remember the covenant. All right, I'm going to go ahead and tell you. I stumble a little bit with this. This is where I stumble. Here's why. I think my wheel gets caught in a ditch here. I started to realize, wait, we can, we can read through all of this. We can, we can celebrate Israel's unfaithfulness, God's faithfulness because he remembers his covenant. And, and I, could, I could bring this all to a close right now by pointing to Christ, which I will certainly do. But, but I want you to think about this just for a moment. Again, who is the Lord speaking to here? He, he's speaking to a group of people who have just been redeemed and brought to the foot of Mount Sinai. We know that. But he's also speaking to those who will perish in the wilderness before they ever see the promised land. Isn't he? Isn't that true? That's who he's speaking to. In fact, look at verse 40 and you'll notice that the pronouns actually change from you to they. Why? Because he's sharing this with Israel... But he's essentially saying, look, you guys will be worm food before you ever see this day. So so you guys will not need to concern yourself with exact details, but no, I'm not utterly going to destroy Israel. Who's the they? For their sake, those who are in the land of their enemies. It's those who've experienced the exile way on down the line. Those who experienced the curses. Why? For their sake, yes, but also for the sins of their fathers, for the sin of Israel. The general corporate unfaithfulness of the nation, he is talking about those who will be in captivity about 800 years later. And so here's the thing. If we want to boil this down to a temporal, physical promise, the promise right now for these people would be, hey, things are going to go well for a few. Do you ever get the idea that God's perspective is maybe a little bit bigger than ours? Work through this with me. This verse communicates God's faithfulness to his covenant and his covenant people. But if you are standing at the foot of Mount Sinai hearing these words, I mean, you're hearing the blessings, the curses, and you're already starting to think, I I got a feeling we're in pretty big trouble. The The lines have been clearly drawn, and now the Lord confirms your worst fear. As you look around at your neighbors, because we're too sinful to look at ourselves, the Lord says, Israel, 
Your people are going to be so unfaithful that I am ultimately going to bring the curse upon them of exile. Casting them out of my presence. Not just a famine, not just a plague, not just some hunger pains, but I am actually going to vomit them out of the land, but I will not utterly destroy them. If you're hearing that, are you comforted by that? That's the question this morning. Because in reality, that's all he's offering, nothing more. He is saying, I'm not going to destroy you utterly. Let's just bring it to us and use a, a, a nowadays illustration, right? What if God met with you and said, I'm, I'm going to give you your, your favorite state. Or in my case, since we're living in my favorite state, my second favorite state. Let's just say the state of Tennessee. We like Tennessee, right? Everybody likes Tennessee for the most part. You should. That's where your pastor's wife is born. <laughs> he says, I'm going to give you the state of Tennessee, the whole thing. And if you don't like Tennessee, then pick your own state. doesn't matter. Just not Colorado. God says, I'm going to give you Tennessee, and I'm going to make you strong. Only your family is going to possess Tennessee. You're going to have all the resources you need. In fact, I'm even going to hang out with you while you're there. Most of us would be like, yeah, sign me up for that. I mean, that's, that's a promise I can sink my teeth into. That's, that's a blessing. Now, what if the Lord was then to inform you that before you ever received Tennessee... For you ever received a family to fill it, complete safety, all of that prosperity, before you receive that, you would actually die. In fact, your only child would die. Your two grandsons would die. It's not even going to be into the sixth or seventh generation until you start moving toward the promised land of Tennessee to take it. Still super excited? Are we still like... Thank you, Lord. Sounds like an incredible promise. The Lord then says, by the way, you should probably know that when they get to the promised land, they're going to, before they do that, they're going to spend a few hundred years in slavery. It's going to be horrible. But remember, keep the promised land in mind. Then you're going to start to think, well, I, don't, I don't know, maybe my neighbor would, would like to take you up on this. And then he says, you know, I should probably go a step further and tell you that, that once you actually get to the promised land, which will be this huge ordeal, I mean, just so many deaths. I don't even really want to explain to you how many people will die in this entire ordeal. But, but when you get into the land, they're going to be so unfaithful that I'm going to have to start sending all the rest of the states, like Arkansas, Mississippi, even Kentucky, just to, just to take you out. Like, I'm, I'm going to clean the land Because you are going to defile it and make it so nasty that I'm going to have to get you out of there. But the Lord throws at the end of that, don't worry. I'm not going to kill every last child of yours. I will not destroy you utterly. Do you understand what's being said here? Like, look, are we okay with that? If this is us, if we're hearing, I will not utterly destroy you. Do we hear that as a great comfort, or are you and I looking for our quickest route back to Egypt? Listen, we have to ask ourselves that question because the Lord is saying a similar thing to us, though we see it not. Let me state this as simply as I can. For the words in verses 44 and 45 of Leviticus 26 to be anything short of comical, for them to be any type of encouragement whatsoever... The Lord's purpose with Israel has to be bigger 
than any physical, temporary blessing. It has to be. It makes no sense if all of this is about a land and a temple. It makes no sense if this is about the blessings experienced in a single lifetime. This is nothing short of horrific news if that's all it's about. But then back up just for a moment and realize, think about Israel's history. You're looking at the redemptive historical record and you may get 80 years. That's pushing it. 80 years of Israel experiencing some level of the blessings described here. In fact, that's why we did only 2 Samuel last year, right? It's because I wanted to show you the best it got for Israel. And if you remember 2 Samuel, even then there were already cracks in the armor, right? Even then it really wasn't all that great. But you look at the reign of King David and Solomon. And even the later half of Solomon's reign is questionable because at that time he had gone apostate too. One generation... One generation that experiences anything close to blessing. Here's my point. If the Israel project, initiated with the covenant of Abraham, instituted at Mount Sinai, is really all about land, peace, and a faithful covenant relationship with the Lord, then the Israel project was a failure. Now, some will say, that's okay, because the Lord is going to make good on that in the future. Some will say there's a day coming when he's going to make good on his promise to Israel. And I would say, if that's the case, then that's really great for whoever's alive then. But for everyone who stood at the foot of Mount Sinai, who cares? The only thing that makes this make any sense at all is the resurrection. Is if there is something greater than a piece of real estate in Palestine. Do you see this? This is not some twisted form of encouragement from the Lord. This is not you will be unfaithful, so I will have to destroy you. But hey, keep your chin up. A few of you will survive in the land of your enemies. It's not about the land and the temple. Listen, it never was. It isn't simply about one nation. This is about all of God's people. It isn't about one geographical location. It's about the whole world. It's not about one generation. It's about God's people in every generation. This isn't about life. It's about eternity. This is the same same exact conclusion that the author of Hebrews comes to in the end of his enumeration of the mighty men of faith recorded in chapter 11 where he goes through all of those who have come before us from from Abraham through David and beyond he talks about how they were men who are ultimately trusting in God and then he concludes with this look Hebrews 11 verse 39 in all these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. See, here's the point, and really it's the application. Friends, what this is, is this is a promise that the Lord will accomplish His mission. This is what this is. It's a promise that the Lord will accomplish His mission. It's a promise that He is unstoppable that his plan to redeem for himself a people cannot and will not ever be derailed he will save his people every last one them and us 
When the Lord says, I will not destroy them utterly, he is saying no matter how unfaithful you are, the seed of Eve will crush the head of Satan. No matter how faithful you are, I will not forget my promise to Abraham to bless all nations through him. No matter how faithful you are, I will remove the curse from all of creation and I will redeem my people. See, Israel's unfaithfulness, our unfaithfulness, cannot stop God from saving the world. Ultimately then, this has to be about God's redemptive plan to send His Son. See, church, God's perspective is very different than ours, isn't it? God's people standing in Mount Sinai, they didn't have the privileged position we have to see the Lord remember His covenant by sending His Son to fulfill it for His people. But those who belong to the Lord, those who were the true Israel, even there, even standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, those who belong to the Lord, they heard the promise that He would not utterly destroy His people. And by the work of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, knew that they could place their faith in the faithfulness of Yahweh. See, it mattered to them because it meant that it wasn't over when they became worm food. It mattered to them because when he promised to not utterly destroy them, he was promising that in the fullness of time he would send his son, born of an Israelite woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That's why it matters to them. But we ask the question, what about us? What does this have to do with us? Here's the temptation. The temptation is to think it's different because of this side of the cross. It's to think it's different because we've received every spiritual blessing in Christ. But friends, it's not that different. In fact, I would say that if I were preaching this sermon in some other part of the world that experiences daily persecution then they too would actually find great comfort in the promise that you may be destroyed, but you will not be utterly destroyed. And in fact, that also should be a precious promise to us. See, church, our our comfort blinds us. And so here's the application. Christian, because of Christ, the Lord will not destroy you utterly. Praise be to God. Merry Christmas. The, The question for us is, is that something you're able to find comfort in? It should be. Jesus talks about in, in Matthew chapter 10 the fact that we will be persecuted, even speaking specifically to his disciples, that they would be handed over to death. But so are many others who claim the name of Christ even now, giving up their own lives to be found in him. Now, we have not been asked to pay that ultimate price, but we may. Either way, I I know this, we will experience pain and suffering. And we will likely in our lifetime experience persecution on a much larger scale. When that day comes, is it enough for us to know that the Lord has sent his son so that we would not be utterly destroyed? Is that enough? Listen, Jesus promises that in the world... We will have tribulation. Paul told the the churches that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the path. 
Paul told Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Likewise, Peter wrote that we have been called to suffer because Christ also suffered for us. Church, the promise is not that you will be healthy and happy. The promise is not that you will be comfortable and content. The promise is that because of Jesus Christ, the Lord of hosts, will not utterly destroy you. God will not break his covenant. Now, listen, if your hope is in the physical, temporal blessings of this life, this promise that God will not utterly destroy you will be nothing more than a cruel joke. But if our hope is in the new heavens and the new earth, where peace and righteousness will reign forever, here, this promise is the seed of the gospel. If we are waiting for the blessed hope of our Lord and Savior, if we are living into that Revelation chapter 22 life, where there is no longer any pain, no longer tears, and where Christ himself is our light, our blessing and portion forever and ever, then the promise not to utterly destroy us, to not break his covenant, but to remember his covenant, that is a promise that has a measurable blessing for the people of God. So, what is your hope? As we come to the Christmas seasons, we, we look at what we've already seen, the promise of God fulfilled. What do you think the Lord has promised you? What does that baby bring? He brings forth the promise that God will not destroy you utterly. And for those who have their minds set on heaven, what a glorious promise that is. It is in this context in which we view all the cultural Christmas season as nothing more and really a temptation to be distracted from the sealed promise that God is faithful. Please, church, my one encouragement to you is do not wait until the day of destruction comes to you and your household to try and answer the question of what your hope is in. Place your hope in him now. Would you stand as we... Actually, stay seated, sorry. We have Lord's Supper. But as our deacons would come down forward to receive Lord's Supper, let's, let's pray together. Oh, gracious Father, how grateful I am for your word. We confess that, Lord, we too often are swept into the day-to-day life that seems so significant. And we often lose sight of your grand redemptive narrative. Father, would you please catch our stories up into yours? Would you please help us that we might persevere in the day of trial and tribulation? Oh, how we love you. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, our God is faithful. I want to... Read from the book of Hebrews. Nate, you're going to have to put this up on the screen. I didn't put this in here this week. But go ahead and put Hebrews 10. I'm going to do 16 to 23 before we prepare to take Lord's Supper. Listen to this wonderful word. It says this. This is the covenant, Hebrews 10, 16, that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts. And in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. 
Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Church, Christ conquered sin and death for us. He is the promise and he has also fulfilled the promise. It is nothing that we have done and it has been from the very beginning God all the way through. It is Christ and Christ alone that we put our faith in. We gather each Lord's Day to celebrate this. Every Sunday, when we gather, we gather to remember what the Lord has done. We participate in the Lord's Supper to remember what He has done for us. And so if you're here this morning and and you do not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, please do not participate in this meal. It is not for you. But saints, I invite you to receive the Lord's Supper at this time. Reminder for those who may be new here, there are two cups. Bread is in the bottom. Juice is in the top. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may partake of the bread. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, he said, This cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant. In my blood, partake of the cup this time. And the Apostle Paul reminds us that as long as you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, which is actually what we're going to end with. My favorite not Christmas song of all time because it's actually a song that was written about the return of Christ. And so, only fitting that at the end of Leviticus... We sing joy to the world after hearing that the promise is you will not be destroyed utterly. And so let's stand and be faithful to sing that together.